I'm talking today with retired Seattle police officer Jim Ritter, who had a 40-year career in law enforcement. He was the department's first full-time LGBTQ liaison, and he created Safe Place, originally for the protection of the LGBTQ community. My reason for talking with Officer Ritter at this time was to get his reaction to the New York City Pride Organization's ban of NYPD officers, not only from working this year's parade, but also from participating in it. We talk about that, as well as Jim's own journey as a gay man in law enforcement, and his decades-long fear of coming out, and how when he did, he knew it was the right thing and the right time. He remains committed to educating police departments around the country and has formed his own company to do so. Jim, welcome. First, when did you retire? Retired July 1st of last year. Okay. Did it feel good? Oh, it feels great. I, uh, <laughs> I'm doing training now around the nation uh, with police on different topics, and I just did a training in Ellensburg yesterday, so it's great to get out in the rural areas with officers who don't talk about these subjects very much and get them educated. In terms of safe place, or is it more than that? Uh, it's basically enhancing the relationships between the police and the LGBT communities and just educating officers on, you know, what the community is all about, why they feel certain ways about the police. You know, the progress has been made, some of the things in history which has uh, caused the community concern. You know, certainly when I got hired and before, I think it just opens the door to a topic that's socially sensitive that a lot of people get nervous talking about, and uh, the police are no exception. Well, and to that end, the primary reason I wanted to talk to you today is I just interviewed Detective Beth Waring from the Seattle Police Department, who investigates hate and bias crimes. She was talking about Safe Place, which you conceived of, created, implemented, not only in Seattle, but across the country and internationally. And then you're talking right now about educating law enforcement about the LGBTQ community. And I believe it's a two-way conversation, right? Community and and then I read in the media that the New York Pride Parade has banned police officers both from working the parade and from participating, which I found personally upsetting. I'm not, I don't identify as LGBTQ and I'm not a police officer, but I thought I was very upset by that. So can you tell me your reaction? Yeah, this is nothing new. Uh, the community's got to understand that the Pride Parade is a private organization, usually. However, they get a lot of city resources given to them, uh, including police. And I think that throughout history, including now, that when you have events this big involving any minority community, especially the LGBT community, it's a target-rich environment for people that uh, don't like the LGBT community to come and commit crimes against them. Mm. Uh, in Seattle, for example, we have you know nearly 500,000 people that show up annually for the Gay Pride Parade. And we have certain activists that don't like the police that put pressure on the organizers of these parades not to include the police. Well, I think it's astounding, and this is what I tell our activists who are uh, less enthusiastic about the police than others, because most of the community is totally supportive of the police. When, when we go through the Pride Parade, the crowd is cheering us all the way along that nearly mile-and-a-half route. And, you know, I hear occasionally one person saying something negative, but, you know, a lot of these activists that don't want the police participating are not in the majority. They're not even close to the majority. 
but they're loud and they, they want to put their point across. But they don't realize, and this is what I tell a lot of the activists that I work with in Seattle that weren't in favor of having the police there. I said, look, when I first came on, in 1983, uh, the relationship between the LGBT community and the police were not great. And prior to that, it was even worse. So the fact that we have put all this effort into supporting this community, we have 100 plus officers within the Seattle Police Department who are LGBTQ, part of that community. And in NYPD, you know, you've got 40,000 police officers. So my guess is you've got thousands of police officers that are part of that community who take pride in who they are, that want to show their support both as community members as well as police officers to walk in the pride parade. And for any legitimate community leader who doesn't want that to happen, I have to ask them, I said, well, what do you really want? Do you really want peace and harmony between the police and the community? Or do you want to keep this fire burning when it may not exist? And they have a tough time answering that. And we said, we're going we're gonna to stay. We are an integral part of this community. We are keeping everybody safe at this parade. For folks that think that society can operate without the police, they don't know much about human behavior because the criminals are the ones that benefit from all this rhetoric. And their dream is not to have any police there so they can do their thing and victimize people. And then we're right back to square one where people are getting assaulted on a regular basis for being different, whether you're black or gay or Asian or, or whoever, it, it makes no sense. It's not based in reality. It's not based in legitimacy as far as I'm concerned. I think it's, uh, it's mean-spirited. And I, I think it doesn't help us progress as a society or as a community, especially for people that claim that they want to have the police more supportive of minority communities. I think you're setting fire to your own wagon, so to speak, when you ask for things like this to happen. I can't understand it. Well, I can't either. But again, I think, you know, activists, there's all different types of activists. There's pragmatic ones, there's divisive ones, and there's individuals out there who become activists for power. They're deathly afraid that if everything is copacetic between the police and the community, that they are going to lose relevance. They don't want that. As long as the controversy continues, they have relevance. I read a New York Times article about the New York City Pride ban and they talked to one particular officer who said how upset she was about it. It made her feel like she's pushed back into the closet. I have to believe people are aware of how hard fought the journey has been for the LGBTQ community in general over time to be out, but they seem to forget it was particularly hard within law enforcement. Oh, sure. It was, a, it was a huge struggle, and it still is in many departments. When I first got hired uh, as a police officer in, in 1980, uh, I was petrified to come out. It wasn't too many years before that police departments weren't hiring gay people because they didn't think it fit the image. Gay people were still considered to have mental health issues. They were not accepted, just like women weren't accepted back in the day, just like African Americans weren't accepted. Now we have transgender officers joining the force, and, and they their acceptance level is frankly a lot higher because 
society has progressed. The majority of folks in the younger generations are totally supportive of this. They don't have the same baggage that my parents had, who were teach, taught by their parents. You know, the officers I was talking to yesterday in training, you know, they varied in age. And, uh, you know, it depends on your religious upbringing and everything else. But, you know, I remember a time when our chief, Norm Stamper, marched in the Pride Parade in the, in the early 1990s. It, it created a huge controversy within our own agency with some officers, not most, but some, who thought this is a political thing. The chief shouldn't be doing this. And the chief, to his credit, was saying, hey, this is the right thing to do. You know, I want this community to know that I'm supportive and that our department is supportive. When I first got hired in Seattle in 1983, I was assigned to a gay district. Well, I wasn't out yet, and I was still very nervous about coming out because I wanted to be known as a good cop and not just Jim the gay guy who's also a cop, right? The community was not accepting of the police either then because it wasn't too many years prior that, you know, SPD and other departments were, including New York, were shaking gay bars down and extorting them for money, putting pressure on customers. It was a bad deal. And so for the older gay folks who lived that era, they've seen the progression. They've seen the improvements. For young people, especially young activists, they didn't experience that. They hear rumors, and a lot of them don't take the time to learn what police departments are doing. They just assume, based on stereotypes and on, on folklore, that nothing's changed. And unfortunately, for police departments, a lot of the police administrators don't recognize that there was a problem because they haven't looked at the history themselves and they don't share, you know, what they're doing to improve relationships, if anything. And I think that people, it's easy for them to stereotype police as being all the same, that we belong to one big club. Well, that's not the case. It's very regional. You know, one city may do a better job than others. Seattle certainly has tried to help other agencies understand this dynamic, both with hate crimes and connecting with the LGBT community. And it's working. Much to my surprise, pleasant surprise, there was no pushback on this. I think more often than not, both with the straight community and with police agencies, it's people's lack of knowledge when it comes to minority issues. Unfortunately, there are some minority uh, community leaders that attack people for their lack of knowledge, which means those people shut down even more. They're embarrassed they don't know more, but they're criticized for asking questions which may not be worded correctly, but they're trying to gain information. I mean, the way to educate people is to teach them productively and encourage them to ask questions without fear of being shut down. And I think when it comes to the, to the Pride Parade, I think that's a great representation uh, that the police departments are able to demonstrate that, of their support for this community. Obviously, you know what would happen if the police were not there uh, protecting those citizens. It would, it would just be a, an open invitation for criminals to continue to do what they've always done at these events, and that's assault people seriously, sometimes fatally. This kind of rhetoric isn't productive in my opinion, and uh, I, I hope that uh, the more rational community leaders and activists who are oftentimes shut down by the loudest voices there, who are not representative of the community, will start talking to the media and pushing back. That's what you need. Right. Now, if the police agency is doing something collectively that is anti-productive towards this community, then that's fine. Deal with it. And, and, and if it's an individual officer doing something, fine, address it with that officer. But don't, don't paint the whole department with that brush because, frankly, those of us in minority communities resent being stereotyped. Yet there are some community leaders from these communities that do just that. They start stereotyping the police. 
And it's not right regardless who's doing it or who it's addressed to. Right. It's just popular to... It's easy. You don't need to think. You just need to repeat. And with social media, you know, you read something, you don't take the time to look at your own experiences with the police. Because most of the time, the folks that I talk to that say they, they don't like the police, I ask them why. And they go, well, because I, I heard this or I heard this. I said, well, what's happened to you specifically? Well, nothing. So I say learn based on your own life experiences and not somebody else's, who, which may not even be true. Right. You know, so that's, uh, that's kind of what the message I, I give to the police in relation to the gay community and the gay community in relation to the police. But it just seems like a community that should be inclusive is now discriminating against their own. Yeah, basically it, it doesn't wash. You don't want to pigeonhole yourself and you don't want to engage in self-segregation either. If you really want to be inclusive, that's going to include the police. You know, the police have always been part of society. They always will be. And I would hate to think what our world would be like without the police, especially in this country. It, it's dangerous enough as it is, but it would be far more dangerous without the police officers protecting the folks out there that are targeted by folks that don't like them because of who they are. And to your point that people don't remember how things used to be, let's do a little educating. So you started in the early 80s. You couldn't be out. How long before you felt comfortable? I assume it was a process, right? You it is a process. And for me, it was 11 years on the SPD. I didn't want to be sacked from consideration being hired because I admitted you know, that I was gay. Luckily, they didn't ask the question, but there's plenty of agencies who still did back then and would use that to silently take you off the hiring list. And there's still agencies that may do that. You know, they're not legally allowed to do it, but, you know, there's all kinds of ways to get around that. So I used that 11 years to, to learn how to be a great cop, in my mind, and, and see what my audience was in this new organization that I was in. Because remember, when I first got hired, I got hired by a small sheriff's office in eastern Washington. We had 14 deputies, most of whom were World War II vets or Korean War vets. I was 18. They were in their mid-40s. So they were raised by parents from the Depression era or before that had a whole different attitude towards this topic, if they even talked about it at all. So when I looked at the history of the Seattle Police Department, especially when they had the grand jury investigations, which, by the way, started from gay bar owners who complained to the press about the extortion that was going on, that combined with Stonewall in New York in 1969, where the NYPD was engaged in the same type of behavior, and it resulted in a riot, and it resulted in people getting hurt, and it brought the LGBTQ issues to the national spotlight which created other issues, same as women's rights did, same as African-American rights did. So, you know, it pays folks to kind of look at history to see where we've come from, to kind of know where we're at now and where we're going in the future. If you don't look at history, you have nothing to compare yourself to as far as, okay, well, how much progression have we been involved with here? In some areas of the country, it's not much. In the Pacific Northwest, especially in Seattle, and other cities, they do a great job. And the fact that, you know, there's activists out there who have worked with me for years in this position that have benefited considerably by assisting us. Some of those activists are the same that will get up in front of the TV and say that SPD is doing nothing to help them. And they know better, and I call them on it. And, you know, they get concerned about the pushback they get from their own constituents that they're too cozy with the cops. 
And, you know, my explanation to them, as I said, if you're a real leader, you're going to tell your constituents when things are going well or when things aren't going well. But when you lie about it, knowing better, it tells me that you're pretty disingenuous. And I really can't trust you because you're not becoming part of the solution. You're continuing to be part of the problem. And I see this with the same activists who are doing this with the NYPD. So going back to your story for a moment, then what did you just gradually tell a handful of trusted people and then expand that circle to a handful more trusted people? Or I, I did. And I think the act of coming out, and I, I think this is exclusive to the LGBT community, is I could be stealth in my position. I could pass as being straight. I'm a white male, and I could sit in the locker rooms and listen to the conversations, and I had a pretty good idea. You know, there were some officers that were just knuckleheads, but then, you know, they're knuckleheads across the board. Everybody knew that they were. So the fact that they made some joke about LGBTQ folks, it was pretty juvenile. The same stuff I heard in high school. I couldn't take them as being representative of the rest of the officers who didn't do that. So it's, at some point in time, I came out to certain squad mates, you know, their biggest complaint was that I hadn't told them before, that I didn't trust them enough to, to tell them. Well, that's easy to say, but, you know, when you come out, you only have one chance to do it. There's no, there's no rewind on that. Once you're out, you're out. And you have to face the consequences, whatever those consequences are. And for, for me, the consequences were positive. I could be myself. I didn't have to be in the closet. It's not living two lives anymore. It's, it's being me. And now I'm at the point in my life and my my career, which just ended after 40 years of, of educating other officers and encourage other officers who might be like me in those audiences. They're listening to somebody going, wow, you know, I, I really want to come out, but I'm not sure what my environment is and how it's going to affect my career. That's pretty satisfying. So what's so interesting to me is here you spent years deciding when and how to come out. And then you take it and run with it and make it big. <laughs> so in 2014, you took your personal experience and also the experience of people whose assaults you responded to and created a, a concept that addresses all those things. So I know that you've done a lot of press about Safe Place, but tell me, when did that idea come into your mind? Was there a particular incident or how did you conceive of this? We should start with what Safe Place is and then how you came up with the idea. The Safe Place initiative that was created back in 2014 and launched in 2015 was a attempted solution at a number of different problems. The LGBTQ community's perception about hate crimes, about the perception that the police may not care and the community may not care. Uh, and specifically the dynamic of the victims not reporting these crimes. So when Chief O'Toole appointed me to the full-time LGBTQ liaison position, which was the first in the history of the SPD, where my sole duty was devoted to this, and frankly, one of the first in the nation that's full-time, the press took it and ran with it. They were interested in it. They did a number of interviews and articles on it. So I started getting phone calls from folks in the community. And they were asking why the hate crimes in Seattle are exploding. And I had read a New York Times article about cities across the country that were reporting hate crimes. And Seattle reported, you know, 123, let's say. Places like Atlanta reported zero 
Well, Atlanta PD and city of Atlanta is much bigger than Seattle, and the rather major cities who are far less progressive than Seattle reported zero hate crimes. And I thought, this is, this is absurd. They would have at least as many as Seattle. But the fact is, we report them better than other agencies, and there's inconsistency with hate crimes laws across the country. There's inconsistency with reporting to the FBI that keeps track of these statistics. And so I thought to myself, wow, this is, this is some, some information that's concerning to a lot of people. So I asked the folks that called, and I had a number of phone calls from victims who said, yeah, well, I, the reason I think it's exploding is because, you know, I got assaulted three weeks ago. I went to the hospital. I got a broken nose. Another person called, and they were assaulted, and their friends had been assaulted months ago and, or a year ago. And, and I had pulled all the reports for 2013 and 14 to verify all this information and none of these incidents were on these reports and I, I asked all these folks I said did you report this to us and they go no and I go oh boy we have a problem here because if we don't know they're going on how would you expect us to respond to them or hold anybody accountable by arresting them for it so I, I asked them all I said well why didn't you report this to us and they said well because we were kind of nervous we didn't think you'd care we were afraid that we'd be outed on a police report. A lot of these victims, just like domestic violence victims, think they deserve it. You know, when you grow up, you know, from my generation, and you heard all the rhetoric, this is God's will that you shouldn't exist, killing homosexuals was an accepted practice and still is in many countries. So when you grow up with this kind of feeling of self-loathing that your life doesn't matter and that nobody likes you, you know, and that you get assaulted as a result of it, you know, that's just kind of the cost of being you. You know, you don't think you're that important because you don't think anybody else thinks you're that important. So why report it to the cops just to possibly have an officer showing up and, and just driving the point home, not taking a report? Prior to this time, yeah, there were some hate crimes laws in the books, but a lot of officers were confused about what that was. There was mixed messages. A lot of times officers didn't write reports on it because the victims didn't want the reports written. They didn't ask the pertinent questions to make sure we had enough probable cause to make the arrest or for prosecutors to file charges and get convictions. So there's all kinds of dynamics there. And it doesn't matter what the dynamics were. The, the only thing that concerned me at that time was they weren't reporting it. And so the Safe Place campaign was designed to address uh, officers' education on hate crimes, the community's education on hate crimes, uh, the fact that gentrification was a big issue in Seattle and that people were being pushed out of Capitol Hill, where the majority of the gay community had lived back when I was a brand new officer. I thought about all the problems that, that we have as far as perception goes and that businesses have perceptions of from minority communities and thought, okay, we need, it. we need something that will collaborate with businesses, the police, the LGBT community, other communities, the media, corporations, and I came up with a Safe Place initiative. I had remembered when I was a kid in the 60s, there was a yellow hand that uh, was introduced to us kids, and it was a deal where the teachers would say, if these houses along your bus route have this yellow hand in their window, this is a safe place for you to go to wait for your parents if you're being followed by a stranger, if you're being bullied. And I go, gosh, what a simple concept. I thought, wow, if I still remember this, you know, we can, we can do something similar. So we came up with a design that showed that the Seattle Police Department supported the LGBT community. It, it had simple comments on it as far as, you know, this is a safe place to report, uh, you know, hate crimes or harassment. 
So the business owners told me, I said, well, yeah, we, we do this. It doesn't cost us anything. It lets people know we're supportive. And we have plenty of employees who are LGBTQ, so that's fine with us. If you were a victim in a panic running down the street and you saw this, you could duck in there. The only two requirements for the businesses were to call 911 immediately on the victim's behalf and to allow the victim to remain there until the police arrive. Just two things. So it would be simple for the businesses to train their employees. And the likelihood of making an arrest would be much higher now than waiting for a victim to call three days later. And so I walked around. I brought a couple of community members with me that wanted to help, including uh, a member of a pretty radical group that doesn't like the cops, but he, he liked the idea of this because we were helping. And we had 25 businesses within four hours sign up for this, which I thought was incredible. I, I wasn't expecting that. It surprised me. And so pretty soon we started getting businesses from throughout Seattle wanting to participate in this and then outside in King County and pretty soon outside the region and then outside the state and then outside the country. So thousands and thousands of businesses are participating in this. Uh, hundreds of police agencies around the country and in Canada. I've been over in Western Europe and Berlin talking about this program. So, you know, it's, it's really taken a positive life of its own on. And what we really used as the litmus test for this is we normally had about seven to eight felony assaults taking place during the Pride Parade weekend in Seattle. And virtually none of these were solved because the victims were either found, you know, bleeding on the sidewalk, they were petrified, they didn't report until days later. Once this information came out and there was a mechanism, there was a person that people could call, they knew to call 911, because believe it or not, a lot of people have confusion about 911. They think that once the emergency is over with, they don't call 911, they don't know who to call. So it's just clarifying what we want them to do. It's educating our officers on the proper way to respond. And frankly, we noticed that during Pride Weekend after this launched, we had again eight felony assaults that, that weekend, seven of which were called in immediately, resulting in seven arrests two of which were done in front of safe place locations, and one of which the uh, witnesses were holding the suspect down when our officers got there. So that told me that, that information is key to everything. And so everybody is in sync with this, the businesses with police, there's true collaboration. I couldn't be happier. That was at least my small contribution to the fact that I didn't deal with myself and I, you know, wasn't part of the community for, you know, the first 33 years of my life. I'm happy to have done it. I'm glad it's continuing. And I hope that uh, some of these LGBTQ community leaders, quote unquote, understand the spirit behind this. I, I think it has worked out well. Uh, I think it has is, is brought the conversation to the forefront to the point that somebody like uh, Detective Waring was appointed to a full-time bias crimes coordinator because the calls were coming in so quickly. It may look like we had a threefold increase in hate crimes in Seattle after Safe Place launched, but the reality was we've always had that percentage of hate crimes happening. They just weren't being reported. And then fast forwarding to today, it sounds like you're continuing this work. Yeah. So after I retired, I knew I wanted to continue to have some impact for the, from the LGBT community and for the victims of hate crimes. So I formed my own company. I'm thrilled to be able to train agencies around the country that may not know a lot about this. But as with anything else, you've got a new generation of police chiefs, you've got a new generation of officers, you've got older officers who have always been supportive of this. However, the, the rhetoric goes around saying, well, the cops are no different now than they were back in 1950. Well, in some areas of the country that may be true, but in many areas of the country, 
it couldn't be further from the truth. Right. I mean, if you look back at when you started and you look today at a young person starting who can be openly gay or openly trans. You know what? I, I look at our younger officers who are openly gay and taking the test and coming on the department and being fully accepted. You know, we had our first transgender officer hired several years ago. There's only a few of us that knew he'd been hired. And I, I talked to him and I said, you know, and I'll, and I'll use his name. His name is Tori. And I said, Tori, you know, you have a chance to really have a huge impact on this agency and other police agencies and communities around the world by sharing your story. And he said, you know, I, I want to be known as a good cop, same as I did when I, before I came out. I said, I don't want to be known as the transgender cop. Give me some time to think about this. Well, he thought about it for a few months and called me back and said, you know what, I think I'm ready. So, you know, Vice News came out and did a story on him. They did a story on a King County deputy who I had known as a female for a dozen years who had just come out and it was a great a situation for both officers and both agencies and uh, a lot of the trans community which you know was really fearful of the police before came out in support of this and they recognized that now there's somebody that they recognize uh, in our police agents who's like them you know agencies are reaching out more and more for this type of training and when they're reaching out to me for it they're not being mandated to have it that tells you that they want it. You know, anybody can have training mandated to them if an incident happens. And I tell these chiefs, I said, if you want to have control over your agency and you want to admit, let the public know you're doing the right thing, prepare your officers before an incident happens. Then you have something to defend against allegations that, uh, you know, nobody's been trained, which implies you might not care. So I think more and more folks are calling and going through this. And that's, for me, that's the litmus test. As a 40-year veteran of the police force in Washington State, this, it doesn't get much better than this. However, it's not just incumbent on the police departments to do this. And I tell this to the activist I deal with. I said, if you're wanting me to put 100% in to helping your community, I need your help. I, I can't have you as an activist going out and working against me when I'm trying to do the best I can. So uh, m most of them understand that, but there's plenty out there that don't. I'm trying to change that narrative. Well, and I guess I have to ask, back to the reason for our conversation today, does New York City have safe place? Well, I have been in touch with New York City officials. Uh, New York City is an enormous police department, you know, 40 plus thousand police officers. And within any subculture that big, you have some internal issues going on. So they were supportive of the Safe Place Initiative, but there was infighting between the police union who wanted to take control over it, the Gay Officers Action League that wanted to take over it, and the police department. So all of this infighting kind of diluted the message. And if nobody could agree who was going to take this on, it didn't get done. Well, you should be, I, I know that you're proud of this, but you refer to 33 years of not being out, but look what you've done. Well, you know, I, I look at those days when I was the officer in these training programs, or I was watching other people from the LGBT community risking their lives by coming out and trying to educate the public, and I wasn't brave enough to do it. And I was a cop, right? And it makes you feel pretty weak, and it makes you feel pretty insignificant. And I thought to myself, you know, it's time. When I did it, it was a feeling of empowerment that I'd never felt before, and I never want to go back to being insignificant and not being strong enough to stand up against those who don't think people like me should exist. 
It's a great feeling, and I know there's still plenty of people out there that are still in the closet, and uh, fear is a pretty powerful emotion. Everybody's got to do what works for them. You know, what I did worked for me. Right. Well, thank you. You bet. As Jim said, he continues with his mission of connecting law enforcement with their LGBTQ communities. The company he has started is J.S. Ritter and Associates, LLC, and I will include the link in the text for this episode. As always, if you are interested in being on this podcast or in contacting me, my email is abby at ellsworthproductions.com. Thanks for listening.